Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. We are recording this on a lovely April Monday here in the fair metropolis of Atlanta, Georgia. Let's give it up for our super producer, the one and only Mr. Max Williams. They call me Ben. Uh, Noel, Noel, did you have a good weekend? Did I have a good weekend? Um, hmm. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I, so we were just talking about the golf, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Which honestly, so like I'm from Augusta, Georgia, which is where the Augusta National Golf Course takes place. The most exclusive and whitest place on the planet, the Augusta National. And every year they hold the Masters Tournament. And um, it is a real um, ship show there. And I happened to be visiting my mom um, and she lives really close to the, the National Golf Course. And it's funny because uh, a good friend of ours and friend of the show, Frank... Well, Heron, his family has these, you know, master's tickets, the team of the tournament. And we were just talking about how you just can't get them. They're so exclusive that they're passed down generationally. And it's sort of a closed system. And you can, like, buy other people's tickets. But if you buy someone's ticket and then you act a fool at the masters, that will come back on the people who you bought the tickets from. So it's very uh, um, uh, high society, highfalutin situation. And then I ended up back in Atlanta uh, as the winner, um, some white dude. <laughs> was announced and it became it, uh, it was on the TV at this place called the brew house in little five points here in Atlanta. And it went from the, uh, you know, the slowest sport alive broadcast, you know, to the white people hugging channel. And that's a lot of that three under par. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the color commentary because even the color commentary is subdued, you know, where they say, uh, and interesting fact about this athlete. Uh, he has, Two different dogs. They're both named. One of his Johnny. legs is uh, slightly shorter than the other. Well, and he's he's, he's made it work. He's made it work, prefer- folks. 
and he prefers to say that sixteenth hole. Yeah. Right, and he prefers to say one leg is in fact longer than the other. So a bit of a, it's a real glass, glass, half, half, glass full. half full, half empty kind of guy, yes. you know. He's a glass, glass half full guy. I'm going somewhere with it, but last thing I say, I joke the white people hugging channel. I, 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 I kid you not. Once the winner is announced, it is just like they got to fill out the broadcast day, I guess. So it just mm-hmm. becomes like every imaginable type of framed shot of white people hugging, uh, and then finally at the end when they before they go to commercial and like or they're done with the broadcast day, it's just a, a, a one shot kind of or two shot rather of the winner whose name eludes me and is irrelevant, uh, and his wife slow motion hugging. Mm-hmm. Set against the beautiful backdrop of the Augusta National, which, to to be fair, is a feat of modern gardening engineering. They literally sure. freeze the flowers with liquid nitrogen in advance of the event, so that they bloom magically just right on time. And the if anyone's wondering, it was it was Scotty Schleffler, 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 yes, Scotty. So we are, yeah, we are going somewhere with this because one thing that the rituals, uh, rituals, the cultural, <laughs> the culture of the, of the masters has in common, I would say, with today's uh, episode is there's very much a sense of exclusivity. There's a very much a them versus us, an in crowd and an out crowd. And right. what we're seeing in today's story is a story about how people can react en masse when they feel their uh, insider status is threatened or when they feel the their hierarchy is being challenged somehow. And this story takes place in London in May, the first day of May, which is, you know, in a burst of creativity, home to a celebration called May Day, you know, dancing mm-hmm. around the Maypole, marching around for various causes. Uh, but Today's story is also about a time May Day went very wrong in London in 1517. That's right. Uh, we're talking about London under Henry VIII. Um, it was a uh, bacchanalian time, lots of uh, carousing and, and drinking and uh, cavorting. I don't know. It was it wasn't between carousing and cavorting. I don't know. We'll, we'll sort that out later. Um, but yeah, in the 16th century, folks in London, um, it was kind of a, it was high times. The Feast of St. Joseph the Laborer was another uh, big uh, event of the season, the start of summer. There would be lots of boozing and schmoozing and all that good stuff. The city would be decorated with these beautiful kind of green boughs and folks would be, you know, dressed in costume, playing the, the hero of, of the working man, uh, robbed from the rich and gave to the poor and all that, Robin Hood. But on this particular May Day, the festivities took a bit of a turn. They sure did. Uh, we're going to learn how over 1,000 people ran uh, muck through the city, wreaking havoc. Uh, within days, hundreds of folks got arrested. More than a baker's dozen were executed in very messed up ways. This is the story of evil May Day. And it's a story of xenophobia. It's a story of social dynamics. It's a story of panic. And looking back, it is also a ridiculous story. A lot of our research here, by the way, is coming from an excellent Smithsonian article by Lorraine Bolsignot, uh, who quotes a awesome professor named Paul Griffiths. The title is On Evil May Day, Londoners Rioted. Not going to read the whole headline yet because we're, we're going to ask some questions for you at the end of this. So if you, if you look back in the 1500s in London, we, we talked about this time period a few episodes ago. If you look back, 
London is a booming city at this time in the early 16th century. And because it was a hub of commerce and industry, it also became a hub for immigration. A lot of people from the European continent were coming to London for opportunities. You know, when we talked about, um, we were talking about journeymen, right? The journeyman system uh, a while back, we learned journeymen would, on their way to becoming a master of their craft, they would go where the work was. So if you were in Italy, you probably wanted to go to Rome. That's where all the jobs were. Or, you know, you wanted to go to Prague. You wanted to find the big cities, basically, because the big cities held the jobs. So Dutch folks, Italian folks, Russian merchants, lots of bankers as well. They all came to London, which was fine. It was okay with most people so long as the economy was doing well and so long as they weren't in the grips of a terrible epidemic or plague. Unfortunately, around this time period, 1517, early 1500s, London did have an economic downturn. They did have an epidemic, something called sweating sickness. Have you guys heard of sweating sickness? Yeah, it sounds pretty uh, pretty unpleasant. Um, is it a matter of like getting like a like a bad fever? What's the what's it caused by? It's weird because from what I understand, I was looking into this a little bit earlier. What I understand is that it was a mysterious disease. We know it was contagious, but since about the late 1400s, 1485 or so, it was regularly infecting large parts of various countries. We know that there are some things, some diseases we recognize in, in modern medical parlance today that can cause sweating, like tuberculosis uh, or endocarditis, uh, which is just infection of a heart valve. It, it's weird because we, we could almost do an episode of it. Honestly, the last epidemic was in 1551, and it, has, it hasn't occurred in a long time since. No one's exactly sure. They think maybe it's a sin nombre, a hantavirus, just kind of group of virus that usually caused kidney failure syndrome. But yeah, there was a mystery disease. Let's, for our purposes today, that's the scary part. Not only was the economy in the crapper, but also... People were getting sick and no one knew why. This was not a problem that Jon Snow could solve like like he did with cholera. I don't know, man. Maybe we talked a little bit about the economics because this kind of xenophobia, yeah, almost always goes hand in hand with economic problems. Yeah, so there was a certain boom time element at play with wheat prices uh, being pretty low um, in the early part of the 16th century. The harvest uh, from 1516 saw a tiny little increase, but nothing super significant. But that paired with a decrease in wages and something that was referred to as a droughty and frosty winter, along with the introduction of the disease in question, caused some of the lower to mid-class Londoners uh, to become very, very anxious about the future. There was a simmering kind of tension and resentment from the lower class uh, against the upper class that had the potential to be sort of a powder keg situation. Um, there always was uh, kind of a bit of xenophobia, um, as remains the case in, in many parts of, of Europe, with a lot of uh, immigrants and uh, 
foreigners being seen as kind of others, uh, referred to as strangers in their midst uh, in the historyvault.co.uk article that we looked at for this episode. And there was a lag uh, with legislation that kind of would help, you know, sort of mediate these these tensions a bit. Because nothing was put in place to limit the economic activities of immigrants, which I'm not saying necessarily was a good thing, but it was something that I think the, the you know, indigenous Londoners would have preferred to have some sort of protection uh, against, um, you know, people coming from other countries to take their jobs. So it wasn't until the 1520s that this kind of legislation was put in place. But that was largely because of the riotous events of evil May Day. Yeah. Yep, or Il Day, as it was also known. There was this palpable sense of tension in old London town at this time, the kind of stuff you could cut with a butter knife through the air. This was also on the uh, rump end of the War of the League of Cambrai, a war against France. England had fought this on and off for years and years, and it had an enormous cost, both in terms of blood and in terms of treasure. And religious authorities were super anxious about all kinds of heretics and uh, blasphemers who were waging a war for the hearts and minds of the faithful. A fun side note, just a few months later, this same year in October, Martin Luther would nail his famous 95 Theses to the door. So these issues all intermix in this gumbo of <laughs> in this gumbo of bad vibes. And uh, they they didn't have gumbo at the time. I'm I'm just editorializing. Sort of a cosmic stew. Right, right. It moves to the beat of jazz. We used to joke about that, uh, how it moves to jazz. Uh, Londoners started to question the legitimacy and the wisdom of their government. And Shannon McSheffrey, who is a professor of history at Concordia University in Montreal, said, quote, artisans and English merchants were united in a sense against these foreigners who were coming in and had unfair advantages, allowing them to prosper while the English board had economic problems. By the way, when we're talking about these foreigners, which Londoners of the time called them strangers, not foreigners. They just said, these strangers on our shores. But there weren't a whole bunch of them. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. 
You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Most estimates say there were about 50,000 people in London at this time 2% of those were born somewhere else. Uh, at the most extreme estimate, maybe 6% were born somewhere else. But it was by no means a huge minority of the population. Still, there was a lot of widespread poverty. People's lives were terrible. Folks were getting sweating sickness, you name it. And that's something that uh, Paul Griffiths, who is a professor at Iowa State University, mentions. He's a history professor. He noted that there was this sense among the working class, especially, that these strangers were taking work away from honest Londoners. They're and taking they were, our germs. Exactly. They're taking our germs. Mm -hmm. And that That's they the would one. they would control various 
industries, particularly the wool trade. So the idea was that there was an insidious conspiracy on the part of some of these foreigners, which obviously is not true. But when people are in desperate times, they often want to have an enemy. Well, and they're vying for limited resources and real estate sure. and um, supremacy in these particular industries. And frankly, I mean, a lot of times, you know, folks that are that'll come in from other countries where they have it way worse are going to have a better work ethic and are going to come in and like set up shop and absolutely kick ass and stake a big claim. And if there aren't either laws in place or oversight or some way of keeping things, you know, quote unquote fair, then you're always going to have people who want to see themselves as better than another group that's quote unquote coming in to take what's theirs. Uh, and without some form of, of mediation or at least oversight, this can blow up uh, because, you know, especially when you're dealing with folks who are living on the edge of poverty you're going to have these tensions potentially erupt. Uh, and, and they did. And this is a big part of it, like I said, was because of finite kind of infrastructure things like the geography of the city. Griffiths goes on to say that uh, some of the foreign merchants um, lived in what were referred to as liberties, which were essentially you know, racially divided enclaves like St. Martin Le Grand, uh, which were outside of the city um, and had their own sort of self-sufficient government, which was perceived as an advantage for the foreigners um, who, you know, were able to kind of band together and get this special treatment. And they looked at it as, as, as an excuse for them to not have to learn the language, to not have to mm -hmm. properly, you know, integrate into London life. Yeah, I want to I want to further set up something uh Fellow ridiculous historians, this is not me defending the xenophobic crowd, but there is there are a couple things in addition to the liberties that really ticked off native Londoners. And it's this Henry VIII and the Crown, they had an iron grip on what guilds and city governments could and could not do. They could set up rules regarding trade and production, but the king could veto those mm -hmm. rules. They wouldn't apply to foreign artists. So Professor McSheffrey points out something that seems silly now, but we have to understand this made a lot of cobblers livid. If you were a foreign shoemaker, the king would let you make shoes in styles that native London shoemakers weren't permitted to make. And this meant that the aristocracy was going to buy the hot new sneakers. You know what I mean? For lack of a better word. But because of this, they were given advantages. They were given distinct advantages. So this wasn't, these objections weren't coming out of nowhere. But John Lincoln and the priest Dr. Bell absolutely capitalized on this in the weeks before May Day, uh, John Lincoln started going around to priests and saying, look, the big Easter sermon is coming up. You need to talk about the problem with these strangers taking over London. To be clear, Lincoln himself was not a priest. He was a merchant. He was a broker, and he had a lot of ties in government and in trade. And he managed to convince one guy, one priest, Dr. Bell, to talk about this in his address at the St. Mary's Spittal. He told his audience, foreigners, eat the bread from poor fatherless children and told the English to cherish and defend themselves and to hurt and grieve aliens. Not very Christ-like, I would say. 
Yeah, it was gross. Oof, uh, not Christ-like at all. Um, but this nationalistic, you know, taking advantage of these tensions and, you know, of poor people who are concerned for their livelihood and for being able to, you know, provide for their children. The idea of the evil foreigner stealing bread out of the mouth of the elderly and the, and the weak and, and, you know, the the youth and all of that stuff. We see this all the time. We see this, like, with, you know, like uh, World War II and, and Hitler and him taking over after the... Um, crushing defeat that Germany saw during World War One and all of the um you know the hardships that, that brought and we've seen it in uh, the United States of America the idea of you know highlighting the otherness of groups that quote unquote don't belong here you know using these dog whistle kind of terms this goes well beyond dog whistle terms and is very straight to the point basically saying yeah we're going to demonize the hell out of these people and cause uh you know native londoners to rise up right isn't that essentially what he's asking people to do Oh yeah, man. He's and it, it also, uh, if you want a more recent historical example, uh, unfortunately, you don't have to look far at all. But you see this in the U.S. today. Uh, whenever the economy is not doing well, you also see it in films like Gangs of New York, which is almost a, a beat by beat example of uh, riling up the lower socioeconomic strata against. Oh, yeah immigrants, even though they're both working class and have much more in common with each other than they do with the ruling powers. With the brass, that's true. I actually recently just watched the uh, Steven Spielberg um, remake of West Side Story. And if you're into musical theater at all, or just good film, I highly recommend it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I loved every second of it. But it is about, you know, these native kind of New Yorkers um, and this, their gang and the, the Jets uh, versus these immigrants from Puerto Rico, which was was newly declared, I believe, Ben, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in that era, a territory of the United States. So they were able to immigrate much more easily. And then they, you know, built all these shops and did what I was describing earlier and kind of like bootstrapping and all that stuff. And there was a lot of instant resentment, which was fed and uh, almost encouraged by the higher ups in the police force. You know, you've got your officer Krupke who's on the street just trying to keep law and order. But then you've got the detective character who's secretly when the Puerto Rican gang leaves is basically encouraging the Jets to keep doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And this, and in all, many of these cases, what you see is a call to arms or a call to action on behalf of a local authority. So it might be a business person. It might be a religious figure. That's what was happening here in London. This got a lot of attention. We have a quote Uh, from a Venetian ambassador who was writing about this on the 5th of May in 1517. This is a a little bit long, but it's important. It's explicit. So I suggest that we uh, divide and conquer here, Noel. You got it. Uh, All right. So he says, After Easter, a certain preacher, at the instigation of a citizen of London, preached as usual in the fields where the whole city was in the habit of assembling with the magistrates. He abused the strangers in town and their manner and customs. And pause here because the next part is important. The next part is just not him having a problem. It's him telling them to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it goes on to say, in addition to uh, abusing the strangers in town and their manner and customs, he also alleged that they not only deprived the English of their industry and of the profits arising therefrom, but dishonored their dwellings by taking their wives and daughters. Ooh, 
really gross fear-mongering and that othering. Um, With this exasperating language and much more besides, he so irritated the populace, that's putting it lightly, that they threatened to cut the strangers to pieces and sack their houses on the 1st of May. And that's quoted as Venetian ambassador, who is literally just kind of standing aghast watching this on 5th of May, 1517. Yeah, so this this is far beyond just free speech about having a problem. This is, and they didn't have the same free speech laws, obviously, but it is directly telling people in the crowd to attack these folks. And McSheffrey says, you got a bunch of young men together, you add alcohol and grievances and righteous calls for patriotism, then they're a combustible situation. So in the final days of April, we've got a great recount of this from an author named C. Bloom in their book, Violent London, 2,000 Years of Riots, Rebels, and Revolts. Foreigners start getting manhandled in the street. You know what I mean? Like, let's say you're a Dutch shoemaker. You're walking by and then somebody like spits on you. Someone just shoulder checks you and it gets worse and worse. And the word is out. There's something fell in the wind. By April 30th, The rumor is that Londoners are going to attack foreigners and a guy named Cardinal Thomas Woolsey hears about this. Now, he is King Henry's right-hand boy. They hang out, you know what I mean? They trust each other and then this means that Woolsey can do a lot of things for King Henry that maybe the crown wouldn't necessarily do officially so he can exercise soft power. And he says, okay, I'm going to get the mayor and the alderman of London to my house. They meet up at his house and Woolsey and the crew said, we're going to nip this in the bud. We're going to have a curfew. And so they instituted a curfew or they want to, but they were already too late. In retrospect, it looks like maybe the city government wasn't super keen to help stop this. Uh, this violence that was coming up on May Day because a lot of those guys agreed that the crown was overly favoring foreign merchants and craftsmen. And uh, one guy did try to, I, I don't know, this is kind of ridiculous. One guy did try to <laughs> to enforce the curfew by himself, like just him as the alderman. Uh, he found these two guys that were out drinking and celebrating April 30th. And then he... Uh, and then he was. He said, okay, you two, you young ruffians, there's a curfew. Get indoors. Get indoors for the curfew. <laughs> and, then the, and then a crowd swarmed him, man, and they whipped him six ways to sundown. Yeah, it really escalated with uh, rallying cries of apprentices and clubs uh, echoing through the streets within just a few hours of that inciting event. And then you had a thousand uh, or more, uh, roughly, young men all gathering around in an area called Cheapside. Uh, And this is from Steve Rappaport in Worlds Within Worlds, Structures of Life in 16th Century London. Um, And of course, we know Thomas More from his treatise Utopia. Um, He was actually something called an under-sheriff at the time. What is that, kind of like a deputy? It's definitely not the sheriff. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like it's a funny. junior sheriff. <laughs> I think of this too, like the, the alderman, the under sheriff. It's, it's one of those titles that doesn't sound prestigious, does it? No, not particularly. 
<laughs> so, but he's that. He's that yeah, thing. He's uh, that. And you know, we know, you know, he becomes a very important uh, political figure in terms of just like modern political theory. You know, with Utopia. But at the time, he was uh, he was installed in this kind of like bureaucratic role, and um, he was uh, an observer of all of this. And, and and under his leadership, the authorities were almost nearly able to get a handle on things, but the mob uh, uh, proved to be a little too expansive and, uh, and hard headed, and potentially super drunk. Uh, that's a thing too. You mentioned uh, alcohol and, uh, and you know righteous grievances. That is a hell of a drug combo right there. And so people started uh, looting shops uh, along St. Martin Le Grand, which, as we said, was that um, enclave. This one, um, the shoemakers in this uh, region would have largely been Dutch. So then we have the lieutenant of the Tower of London, Sir Richard Cholmley. That's a very British name. And he ordered his men to go down there and start opening fire. Like, yeah, in this article in Smithsonian, the, the, the quote is uh, firing ordinance. But I mean, that's basically just bullets, right? Ordinance is yeah. usually just like big bullets. They were firing into the crowd. Yeah. yeah 100%. Uh, they, and this this is not, you know, this is something that is frowned upon by world governments today. But even firing at civilians didn't stop their pillaging. They went beyond St. Martin Le Grand. Uh, they were sacking and pillaging any neighborhood that had foreign apprentices living in it and traders. And, you know, also there were actual native-born Londoners living there, but if they were in the wrong neighborhood, their shop would be up for grabs too. Finally, the Lord's March in with uh, some men-at-arms in the early hours of May 1st, they put down multiple riots across London Eventually, there were an estimated 25,000 troops inside and around central London. This this went on for about four or five hours. I guess also, it's interesting the way it's described. If we go back to the Venetian ambassador we mentioned, the gang of roaming ne'er-do-wells and rioters, they're described as wearing themselves out, which in my mind means maybe they got exhausted because they were drinking a lot. And also, yeah, you know, rioting is, is an energy-intensive activity. Uh, sure. Yeah, but... They're covering a lot of ground. I mean, they're getting a lot of steps in. Not to right. mention that they're, you know, potentially doing beatdowns along the way and smashing shop windows and yelling a lot, presumably. So, yeah, I could see how they get a little bit uh, tuckered out after a while, especially if there's booze involved, which, as we know, in this time likely would have been beer, which is very filling and can make mm-hmm. you a little bit sleepy. Yeah, and they might have like run out of beer by this point, and yeah, they're just yeah, like you know they're like going fuel. at yeah, they were so sure. into it early on, but then like at this point they're just like as Noel said they're just like full and tired and wanted to take a nap now. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, and then okay, so this Venetian ambassador says that he feels Cardinal Wolsey and his crew had done the right thing, and that activating these troops, even if you're firing into a crowd did prevent further violence. And here's here's the weirdest part. This is not necessarily the crux of the story in terms of the human toll taken. There were multiple neighborhoods with a lot of damage done, but no one had been killed, which is amazing because what happens after the riots is the really interesting part. 
This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It is. I just want to double back really quickly. They, they must be using the term ordinance here to refer to some sort of suppressive 
non-lethal alternative to bullets. Like nowadays we think of firing into a crowd uh, for uh, crowd control. It would be something like rubber bullets, you know, which is painful. And if you catch one in the eye, you're going to get blinded, but it's not going to kill you. But if there were no deaths and they're firing into a crowd, it must have been something like birdshot or like, you know, uh, rock salt or something like that that would have like mellowed people down and caused them to disperse, but not like executed them. Yeah. Yeah. The ordinance didn't kill anybody either that we know of for sure. The weird thing is that the crown used this acting out, used this riot as a way to, or they used it as an opportunity to give themselves more power. First, to understand this, we need to go to Joanne Paul writing for the History Vault with the article Immigrants and Propaganda which is about the 1517 evil May Day riots. And Paul explains it this way, saying that you have to understand the essence of Tudor international affairs and the importance of political performance. The rioters who got apprehended weren't just charged with rioting and disturbing the peace. They were charged with treason because their attack on foreigners could be interpreted as an act of war against those foreigners' home countries, meaning it could be a breach of the peace that Henry VIII had worked hard to establish with all other Christian princes. So they, in their mind, in Henry's mind at this time, that violence is not violence against foreign dignitaries and shoemakers, it is an act of violence against the crown and against the state itself. So it's seditious. It's treasonous. 300 people get arrested, one of whom is our boy Lincoln from earlier. And uh, he gets, along with, uh, I think, 13 other people, he gets the absolute worst punishment, which we were talking about a little bit off air. Yeah. Yeah. William William Wallace type treatment. <laughs> right. Freedom. Max, you want to you want to fact us up with that one? Uh, do I have to? What hung John and quarter is? It's uh, it's a uh, oh god, it's about as bad as it comes. Well, I mean, how much of this should I leave out, guys? Well, no, I think we want the people to to understand the full weight of this uh, punishment. I mean, I I I I brought up when we were talking about it off air. It's like. You really got to do all three? Is one of them just to start with a humiliation? Because, I mean, you could, any of these acts would kill you, but hung is where they start you off and you're hung by your neck, right? But you don't die yet, and then they tie you to a horse, right, after so, gutting you? So how they would do it, I mean, this is one of these punishments where they got kind of, like I guess, lazier over time. They brought it over to the colonies, if I remember correctly, but they would hang you till you're basically dead and then chop you off of there emasculate you, mm-hmm. disembowel you, then mm-hmm. behead you, pick your head, put it on a spike, yeah, and then quarter you, chop your body into four parts. Yeah. Well, wasn't there a version of this that involved being tied to two horses that were slapped and dr- pulled in different directions? That's when they, like, you know, didn't have all the stuff where they would hang right. you to near death and then die, tie you up by horses and then have the horses just run, yes. Yeah, typically you would be, t- typically the horse part would take place like in the early days, the horse part would be when they fasten you to a wooden panel and then tie that to a horse. And then the horse just runs and drags you in a very ignoble way to the site of your non-lethal hanging. But I heard there was a version of it though, where that involved two horses. 
Mm-hmm. That would yeah. like be one horse would be tied to one leg, one or the other, and then they'd get slapped on the butt and go in opposite directions and rip you in half. Well, this is interesting. Uh, so being pulled apart by wild horses, you'd usually have four horses, and that was typically execution, a kind of execution that was reserved for regicide, the murder of a monarch. I see. So these are, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm sort of uh, mixing my, uh, my brutal um, death sentences here. But yeah, this is it. the thing. This, what, uh, I was talking about this off air. You know, I understand wanting to set an example by an execution, but after a certain threshold, it feels like someone's doing it for fun. You know, that's so extra. Like after a certain point, they're just desecrating a body, right? And there's no mind there to encounter the punishment for its actions. But yeah, there were brutal, you know what we could, we could do, uh, we could do a, a, an episode on the weirdest, strangest execution methods, but I think we need to pop a disclaimer on that because that would so. be for everybody. Yeah. Um, I just realized guys, yeah. uh, just, just while, while you were describing this, Ben, I was just doing a little Googling. The drawn part literally refers to being drawn behind a horse, like in the street. And oftentimes they wouldn't disembowel you while you were alive. You would hang until you were dead. And then they would just, like you said, Ben, just desecrate the hell out of your corpse, you know, to further humiliate you and, uh, and uh, tarnish your chances of, Going to the afterlife, I guess. And, like, you know, it's really, like, make other people, like, be like, oh, so you should not consider doing anything like that because look at what we're doing to this person's well, body. And they distribute the bits to, to the, the, the various parts of the realm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Your head on the spike. Don't forget about yeah. the spike. And this, this is the, you know, one thing, a uh, note about inequality that haunts me with this is that for a lot of people executed in this fashion, being drawn, like I was saying earlier, being tied to that panel and drugged behind a horse, it's kind of the closest they would ever get to riding a horse. It's a real right. monkey's paw situation for anyone who's like, one day I want to ride a horse. Yeah. Monkey's finger curls. Uh, so, it yeah. This is leaving only the middle finger. Only the middle. And so 14 people, including Lincoln, meet their death in this tremendously gruesome way. And then on May 4th, the government of London and the, you know, the legal apparatus charge almost 300 other people, not just dudes, men, women, and children with high treason. How are you going to charge a child with high treason? What eight-year-old is like, the revolution begins today? Here's the thing, though. If that sounds weird to anybody else, there's a pretty good indication, I think, that this charging of all these people, men, women, and children, was a setup for a little bit of political theater. That's right. I mean, it really was kind of a way to maybe prevent further revolution or um, to kind of quell any kind of discontent or to make people feel like justice justice had been served, but it maybe hadn't exactly. Um, There were another 400 rioters that were condemned to that same, you know, horrible end of of being uh, hanged, drawn, and quartered. But the queen... Uh, Catherine of Aragon, the Queen of England, uh, supposedly, you know, in a, in a, in a moving show of, of emotion, a real display, is described as uh, on her bended knee, uh, obtained their pardon, all 400 of these, uh, to show mercy, to show uh, this, this, this magnanimity, you know, coming from the highest possible office in the land. Mm-hmm. Um, like, look at me in my mercy. 
Yeah, that was absolutely it. And it it was like a, um, what do you call it? The, we have to remember foreign courtiers would have been there too. So it'd be like, look how merciful and good the queen and therefore the government is. And so that got, that appealed to the aristocrats, but then they wanted to look even better to the common people, right? What's that song? Is it Pulp? Common it's people? Pulp. Great yeah. song. So Great they wanted song. to pull pull one of those, uh, be like common people, do what common people do. And what do common people do? They thought they forgive. So there's this other huge thing at Westminster Hall on May 22nd. And the Cardinal that we mentioned earlier, Woolsey and Henry, our boy, the King, make these long speeches about, you know, justice and, and the nature of punishment for rebellion. They bring these almost 300 prisoners in and they've got ropes tied around their neck like they're just about to be killed. And then they all fall down on their knees at once. This is clearly choreographed. And they're going, mercy, mercy, please. And then the cardinal and the other like nobles join in. And I think this is super fake, by the way. I don't know if you can tell by the way I'm talking about it, but they join and they're like, oh, king, please, and your infinite majesty and mercy, forgive these uh, these prisoners. And they act like they're literally begging him, but backstage, they all knew how this show was supposed to go. It's like a wrestling match. This is yes. wild, man. I mean, you're right, Ben. This was totally political theater because they essentially, um, uh, the way historyvault.co.uk points it out, and I completely agree, they reframed what was clearly a xenophobic riot uh, between Londoners and, you know, who they saw as these foreign, you know, invaders uh, taking their job, their livelihood, their whole way of life. And they reframed it into a rebellion against the state because, uh, again, and, and there was some truth to that because, you know, it's one of these things where if you're in the the game of, of politics, the game of thrones here, um, you do a lot of things to make sure that you are seen in a certain light by your allies and even your enemies. And when the common people took this into their own hands by, you know, absolutely um, beating in the streets and defacing the property of these immigrants, wasn't a good look for the crown to those allies and could have potentially exacerbated things with some of those enemies. So they flipped it and made that really the focus by saying, no, these are traitors to the crown and then they were able to flip the script once again by showing this just absolutely you know christ-like mercy uh and essentially through all of this having a win by in the end having everyone uh even more loyal to the crown because they saw oh oh they they, they spared the lives of these men you know who i identify with whomever you were yeah it was it was incredibly clever you know and then the next thing we have to ask about really is the legacy here. What changed? Everybody got a shot of uh, propaganda and state loyalty. 14 people were killed in a gruesome way. Everybody else got off due to the, apparent, the apparently spontaneous mercy of the king. But not much really changed for the, the strangers, for the foreign-born residents of London. The issues with immigration persisted after evil May Day, and there were more and more regular tussles regarding immigration and migration in the late 16th century, early 17th century, especially when Protestants began arriving after the Reformation, you know, after uh, England broke with the Roman Catholic Church. 
And these folks were religious refugees. That's what they were seen as. So they were at first welcomed, but then they also set themselves up in economic niches. They started to really represent in different specific industries. And so again, the problem occurred. And you had English-born folks saying, well, I don't care if they're Protestant. They're taking over the wool game and we're the woolmen here. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and people talked about constantly. It's in plays, it's in ballads. Even Shakespeare gets involved talking about it. It, it left a, a lasting impression. There's a really cool woodcut um, image on the Smithsonian Mag article on Evil May Day. Londoners rioted over foreigners stealing their jobs by Lorraine. I believe it's Bossano. Uh, might be Boissonneau, B-O-I-S-S-O-N-E-A-U-L-T. Lovely article from 2017. At the very top, you can see uh, a depiction of kind of like the early seeds of this riot, you know, with people kind of looking like we're a little bit grumpy and malcontented and you can kind of see the, the sides, um, you know, starting to form um, in this image. It really is something that persisted kind of in the zeitgeist and in, in the, uh, and it led to, it sort of set a precedent in some ways where it's like, okay, we can't let these things get out of hand, but it just meant that a lot of these resentments and um, biases and bigoted behavior just were a little bit more underhanded. Maybe not quite as like large scale riots in the streets, but I mean, we know this kind of behavior exists to this day. Mm -hmm. It, it, it has a couple of different meanings, depending upon one's perspective. On one side, you know, as Professor Paul Griffith said, it can remind those in authority about the danger of working class rebellion. But then uh, from another perspective, it kind of gives you this, this romanticized sense of the valiant apprentice, the hero of the working class who is standing up to the corruption in the halls of power. And this, again, both of those perspectives in their own way are valid, and they both come in handy time and time again. You're never too far away from a riot or a revolution, no matter where you live. It reminds me of that excellent quote, that no society is more than three meals away from revolution. It's often yeah. attributed to Lenin, but a lot of a lot of people have said it, and they've said it because it's true. Yeah, it sure is. And these are the types of disputes that really can only uh, take place between folks who are living on the edge of survival. Um, you know, the the disagreements and and wars and struggles of the upper class take on a completely different tone. And oftentimes these, uh, as we've seen here, these types of struggles are capitalized on by the upper class in order to further their own agenda. As opposed to like, the question remains like, do they actually, does the crown actually care about either of these parties? I think the answer is probably no. I think it was more used as a political bargaining chip or, or a way to kind of stage that excellent bit of political theater. Agreed, agreed. And that's that's a lesson that I think we can all take away from this. Even in 2022, fellow Ridiculous Historians, this was a little bit of a long one, but we really wanted to explore it together. And we hope you enjoyed this exploration as much as our own super producer, Mr. Max Williams, will surely enjoy editing it. Thanks, Max. You're an unsung <laughs> hero. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, in addition to Max, we also thank his brother, uh, the composer of our theme song here, Mr. Alex Williams, wherever he may roam. God bless you, sir. Christopher Hasiotis, Eve Jeffcoats, here in spirit. 
Yes, and of course, thanks to our own one-man riot, Mr. Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. the Quister. Uh, He has not been drawn and quartered at this time. Uh, Just just, uh, shot him a note for confirmation, and he said, why would you ask me that? So I think he's fine. And uh, happy May Day, I guess. Yeah, in advance. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card with 24 seven U S based live customer service from discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.